Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Well, have you ever been treated unfairly? I was racking my brain to think of an experience in my life where I knew I had been treated unfairly. And I don't know that I came up with one where I know I have, but I can remember, I think, when I first thought I had been treated unfairly. Uh, One of my earliest jobs was working for a gentleman where we did landscaping. And uh, this was back in the day when the minimum wage was way lower than it is now. I think I got paid $6 an hour, which was just a hair above minimum wage at the time. Which, you know, that's okay. I, I wasn't complaining. It's my first, one of my earliest jobs. I can remember getting a paycheck at the end of the week, and I thought, hold on a second. I, I was with him a lot more hours than I got paid for. And I think he let me know after the fact, after I asked him about it, that he didn't pay me for the time I was in the car with him going from place to place, and he didn't pay me for the time I was with him at lunch. He paid me exactly for the time that I mowed grass. I thought, man, you know, I've given up two extra hours a day because we're riding in the car. I thought I was treated unfairly. The reality is I've probably been treated more unfairly on the positive side than I've been treated unfairly on the negative side. In fact, I know without a doubt that I missed a few whippings that I should have gotten as a child because my dad didn't know about the bad behavior or because he was gracious. The passage of Scripture we're going to look at here in just a moment, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18, deals with people being treated unfairly. And then what is our response to be to that? It's in this section of Scripture where Peter is indicating how we as followers of Jesus are to engage in acts of subjection and submission to one another. Last week we looked at Peter saying to the body of believers that they're to be submissive to the governing authorities. He's going to move to a different category of individuals, not just all of us as Christians, but he's going to talk specifically to slaves. Read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And our memory verse for this month is verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A few introductory comments I think are necessary in this passage of Scripture. In your text, in your copy of Scripture, it may say servants or it may say slaves. Um, In the text itself, the word is not doulos, which is the general Greek word for slave. It's the word that reflects on a household servant. 
carries with it the concept of an indentured servant or someone who is obligated underneath um, a master, but it still carries that slave-master connotation, which was certainly predominant in the Greco-Roman world. And in fact, many of the early Christians that Peter and Paul would write to and John would write to were slaves. They were individuals who did not own the right to their own lives. They were underneath masters and underneath authorities. Now, a couple of things that that does. We're, we're reading this through the lens of a 21st century uh, Christian. And so there are a couple of factors that I want to make sure we understand. Number one is we need to remember the audience to whom Peter is writing. He's writing to people who are living in a day and age in which they couldn't do nearly as much about the circumstances in which they lived. Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians, if you can free yourself as a slave, please go about and try to free yourself. That's one thing we need to remember. Another thing we need to remember is that the slavery in the Greco-Roman world was bad, but it's not the exact same type of slavery that we might draw connotations to in American history. The slavery in the Greco-Roman world, masters could treat their slaves as property, and they did, and it was unjust, and it was wrong, but it wasn't racial uh, slavery. It wasn't as if the Greco-Roman people decided, hey, this group of people, we don't like them, we don't like the color of their skin, so we're going to enslave them. It was still wrong and unjust, but the type of slavery and that was, uh, that was predominant in American history where whites enslaved blacks. Folks, that, that, is, that is not the type of slavery that, the, that Paul, was ta- Paul was talking about in the book of Ephesians, nor Peter talking about here in this passage of Scripture. And so it, that's, that's not the same. Still unjust, still wrong treatment, but we shouldn't draw those same connotations. In fact, passages of Scripture like this make us question, why did the Christian writers not deal with slavery as a system as much as we would have liked them to? As much as we don't like it, Christians of previous eras looked at passages like this and used it to justify slavery in in bad and evil ways, even in our own American history. So why is it that Peter didn't write about it? In fact, for me as a pastor... For me as a theologian, for me as an interpreter of Scripture, I would really have liked Paul and Peter to say something different about slavery. I would have liked them to write something like this. If you are a slave, be subject to your masters. But let me just say a word about slavery in general. It's wrong, it's sinful, and we ought to abolish it. Wouldn't you? I would really have liked that to be in Scripture. It might have helped our country out with uh, our issues of slavery. So why didn't the writers in the New Testament say it that way? Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on 1 Peter puts it this way. He says, Modern people often ask why New Testament writers did not criticize the institution of slavery or advocate its overthrow. The latter was completely unrealistic for the fledgling New Testament church in the Roman Empire. The young churches would be fighting the consensus of the Greco-Roman world, and hence any such attempt would be doomed to futility. Why was there not criticism of the practice? Again, we must remember that the New Testament documents address readers in a situation in which they live. Railing against slavery would not be of any help to ordinary Christians. For as noted, the dissolution of slavery was out of the question... Furthermore, New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform culture. 
Their concern was for the relationship of individuals to God, and they focused on the sin and rebellion of individuals against their creator. I mean, you got to remember that Peter's writing to several thousand max people that are in his immediate audience. Inside of a Roman Empire that had millions and millions of people. And on top of that, the citizenry in the Roman Empire did not have a, a really a say in even the authority how the Roman Empire operated. Not to the extent that we do. And so what Peter's concerned about is he's concerned about the behavior of Christians or the lifestyle of Christians in their context. Not so much about changing culture and overthrowing systems. But by the way... As Christians did advance in the world in which they lived, they did have a say in the way culture operated. They outlawed things like uh, abortion in the Greco-Roman world when Christianity rose to, to be the predominant worldview in, 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 uh, in the Middle Ages. They, they stopped practices like infanticide. They changed uh, behaviors with regard to slavery. And they cared for people in their day and age and in their culture because Scripture taught them to love one another. And so Christianity has had a significant influence on the way things that happened. By the way, the abolition of slavery even in our country it owes itself to Christians who recognize that men and women were created in the image of God regardless of their skin color or their heritage. And it's really a lesson that we could learn well from today in the racial divisions that are in our country. We as Christians need to see people as created in the image of God and love people as such. But what this passage of Scripture does teach us are some, things, some lessons about Jesus being our model and an example. We're looking at sojourners, slaves, and substitution as our title. And there are three lessons that we can learn. First, as servants, as servants, we submit because Jesus is our example. Paul, Peter rather, I've got Peter and Paul both on the brain because Paul talks about this very thing in the book of Ephesians. Peter is addressing this subject here in this particular letter. He says, servants are to be subject to their masters. Why? Because it is right when we suffering unjustly or unjustly honor Christ as our example. He says, not just to the good masters, not just to the ones who treat you right. He said, we're to serve and be subjective, sub submissive, even to the ones who treat us poorly. Well, that, that's, that's harsh. The best analogy for us is when you have an unjust boss. If somebody treats you poorly as a boss, we've all had those examples. Someone who doesn't treat us very nicely or someone who, who treats us unfairly compared to the way he treats or she treats someone else in your organization or in your company. And, and what is Peter teaching us? He's saying to us that we're to be submissive regardless of the circumstance we face. That, that challenges our rights. So that's that tension between our Christian responsibilities and our rights as citizens. And what do we do there? Peter says that we as Christians are to act in surrender and submissiveness and do our jobs regardless of how we're treated. Why? Because it honors Christ. Notice what Peter says. Not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It honors God when we get treated unfairly and we act in a way that is, in, uh, that is consistent with the behavior of Christ. Why? Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
Remember that Peter's statements about submission to governing authorities, to masters, and then what he's going to talk to in the context of the home. The imagery is this. He wants Christians to behave and act in a way that distinguishes themselves from the others in their day. And if a slave or a servant submitted themselves to a master in a way that they took on unjust treatment and still glorified God in it, that distinguished themselves. It brought praise and honor to Christ and it gave them a way to show who God was in the midst of their culture and in the midst of their slaves, their fellow slaves and also their masters. You can imagine what would happen if you got beaten unfairly in Peter's day. And instead of bucking up and acting in, in arrogance and acting to fight back, took that graciously, you prayed for your master, you served your master, what's that going to do to a master? What's that going to do to fellow slaves? Well, it's going to give you an opportunity to tell why you could behave that way. And why you could behave that way is because Jesus had done a work in and through your life. See, Jesus is the example. He's the model. In this text of Scripture, Peter identifies that. He says in verse 21, for to this you've been called. To this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Jesus is the model. He is the classic person who suffered unjustly. You realize he had never committed a sin, never broken the law, never spoke incorrectly. And yet what did he do? He went to the cross and was beaten. And he was hung on a cross and he was crucified and he had a crown of thorns placed on his head and he died and he was innocent and he died. He suffered for you. He gave us an example to follow. He, he pictures something that, that we should behave and we should do in our daily lives. Because Peter's emphasis to the church in his day was live in a way that distinguishes you from everyone else. And if you follow the example of Jesus, you're going to live in a way that distinguishes you from everyone else. So what do you do when you're treated unfairly? What do you do when someone punishes you unjustly? What do you do when the boss acts in a way that's in discord? You follow the example of Jesus, you honor Christ, and you trust yourself to God's justice. Notice what it says about Jesus. When he was reviled, Jesus, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know what? God sees every time you're treated poorly, every time you're treated well. God sees the attitude of your heart. He sees the, 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 the words that you want to speak and he hears the words that you do speak. By the way, he also hears the words you have conversations with in your mind that you never say out loud. He knows it all. And he knows if you're treated unjustly. And let me tell you something. God is the one who will eventually right all those wrongs and solve those inadequacies and deal with those injustices he did with Jesus. He will with us and we can trust ourselves to his cause and to his case. We can depend on him. As Christians or as servants, we submit because Jesus is our example. We don't push back. We don't fight back. We don't argue because Jesus is our example. Secondly, as sinners, we receive Jesus as our Savior. He's our Savior. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture, Peter does something gloriously unique. He 
gives to us Jesus as our model and as our example. And he also describes to us Jesus as our Savior. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Now, in theological circles, there have been debates for centuries about the extent of Jesus' work on the cross, his atonement, his death for our sins. And that, that troubles and embarrasses some Christians because the reason Jesus went to the cross for our sins is he went to atone for your sins. He appeased the wrath of God, God's hatred and anger at human sin. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. That is clear from the text. And so a lot of Liberal Christians like that idea of Jesus being our model. Jesus is our example. Jesus is the one who showed us great love. And he is our model and he is our example. And he is the one who showed us great love. They kind of don't like that part where Jesus atoned for our sins. A lot of conservative Christians like the idea that Jesus atoned for their sins. But they look at that idea of Jesus being our model and say, hold on a second, we can't live up to that standard. And so let's, let's just be thankful that we're forgiven and, and let's go on about our business. But Peter connects the two. He tells us that Jesus is our model. And you know what? You and I have a glorious obligation and a glorious privilege to follow Jesus as our example, even when he does things that are beyond our reach. You know why we can still follow Jesus as our example when he does things that are beyond our reach? Because Jesus is also our Savior who died for us that we might be forgiven when his example of righteousness is beyond our reach. Because the standard for which God holds us is perfection. He desires and demands that we're righteous completely and totally. He demands that when you're treated unjustly, you respond with an attitude of humility and surrender. And I'm going to tell you that is beyond all of us. At least in the sense of being perfect. So what did Jesus do? Well, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus stepped in and did what we could not do. It's a glorious picture. As sinners, we receive Jesus as Savior. Did you catch this? He suffered, verse 21, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. That might be one of the most glorious and challenging phrases in all of Scripture. Christ suffered for you. Do you realize that when Jesus went to the cross, he suffered on your behalf? He didn't just face injustice because some mean, bad government person didn't like him, like Pilate or like Caesar or like the religious leaders. Jesus suffered for you. He suffered for your sins and he suffered for my sins and he paid the price so that we as sinners could experience forgiveness and cleansing and righteousness. What does that mean? It means several things that we need to grasp. That he went to the cross to suffer for us means that God is more holy than we could ever imagine. God is sovereign and he is righteous and he is pure and that he demands utter perfection should draw us to think about the greatness and the glory and the holiness and the majesty and the wonder of God. It should also lead us to remember that we are more sinful than we think. You know what our tendency as humans is? Our tendency is this. We, we overestimate our own goodness or, or the intentions of our own heart. And we usually underestimate the goodness of, some, of somebody else. 
In other words, we always make ourselves out to be better than we are and make other people out to be worse than they are. That's our tendency, right? When the reality is true, do you realize that that we tend to forget our own sinfulness? Our own sins? I mean, think about it. You can go back and layer some of the things that you've done wrong, but we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, which means sometimes we forget those things that we've done wrong. But how many of you forget something that someone else has done wrong against you? Some of us are really good historical arguers, meaning we can remember every fault and flaw of that person that we live with or every fault and flaw of that person we work for. We don't have a problem remembering their faults, but we do have some problems remembering our own faults. The reality is that Jesus suffered for our sins is a reminder that we're more sinful than we think. Think about how bad you really are, and I promise you, you're worse. Think about how bad I am, and I promise you, I'm worse. I'm way worse than you think I am. But God knows how bad I really am. That's why he sent Jesus to the cross. And here's the final truth that really grips at our hearts. Jesus loves us more deeply than we deserve. Do you realize that? Do you realize he suffered for you? I mean, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Do you know what that means? He bore your self-righteousness. He bore your pride. He bore your lust. He bore your anger. He bore your gossip. He bore your unfaithfulness, your unfruitfulness. He he bore all of those sins in his body on the tree. Imagery there is that Jesus became a curse for us. The book of Deuteronomy teaches that if a person was hanged on a tree, he was cursed by God. That the reason when Jesus went to the cross and he hung on a tree is the picture, the imagery of being cursed. Uh, uh, And you know, being cursed is a bad thing. Occasionally in my life, I've been cursed out. Usually that involves me not paying quite as much attention when I'm driving and pulling out in front of somebody. And then you see images and, you know, read lips of things that, that people are saying to you as you're interrupting their driving ability or their, their pathway. You know what I mean and, and, and that kind of thing. But in this imagery, it's the curse of God on Jesus for our sins. He took your curse because the reality is because you're sinful and I'm sinful, we're the ones who deserve to be cursed. And not just cursed by dying on a tree, but cursed by being separated from God for eternity. And Jesus took that curse in his body on the tree. I want you to grasp this. If you're watching us by way of Facebook or Vimeo or YouTube, and you're unsure about salvation, you're not sure about trusting Jesus for your sins, I want you to grasp this. When Jesus went to the cross some 2,000 years ago, he took everything you've ever done, and he bore that in his body on the tree. Every sin you could imagine and think of, whether you're five or whether you're 15 or whether you're 45, Jesus bore your sins. Tell how many sins can you do as a five-year-old. As a five-year-old, you can disobey your parents. As a five-year-old, you can tell a lie. I've got two boys and I've been a boy myself and I know I wasn't always honest and 
Sure, they've not always been honest. You know what? Jesus paid for those sins on the cross. Just like if you're an adult, he paid for your dishonesties. And he paid for your anger. And he paid for your immorality. And he paid for your lack of good ethics. All of the things that you've done that you say, yeah, maybe not so bad. Jesus carried every single one of those in his body on the tree. He bore your sins on the cross. He took a curse that you deserved. Why? So that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. He did what you couldn't do so that you could be forgiven. As sinners, we receive the forgiveness of Jesus. So that we may have cleansing and forgiveness and eternal life. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter's imaging, by the way, he's, he's giving a picture from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. We don't have time in this service to read this text, but I would encourage you as a follower of Jesus to make some time today or tomorrow to open up Isaiah 53 and read it in light of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Peter is reflecting on the very themes and the ideas of what Jesus did, who he was, so that he could cleanse us and forgive us and make us right with himself. It's a beautiful imagery and picture. As sinners, folks, we need to receive Jesus as our Savior. In just a few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. Thirdly, as sheep, we follow Jesus as our shepherd. Notice how Peter closes out this paragraph. He says, For many of you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. As sheep, we have strayed. The picture is this. Peter's saying to us that before we had come to God, we had decided to go the wrong direction, a different direction. It, this is uh, language that is used in, the, in, in Isaiah's message about the suffering servant. It's language that's used in the New Testament. In the book of John, Jesus is described as the good shepherd. Jesus uses illustrations about shepherds going after sheep. The, the 99 that, that were safe and in the fold and the one that had gone off on its own and the shepherd leaving the 99 to search out the one that had lost and that was lost and that had gone on. And, and today we're in Wilkes County, North Carolina. We're more known for our chickens and our cows than we are for our sheep. I think part of that is because sheep are not the brightest animals in God's creation. I want you to get this. When, when we're described as sheep that have strayed, that is not a compliment. Sheep are not generally intelligent beings. They kind of do what's in front of them, and that's all they do, and that's all they know. A, uh, an illustration I read this week came from a, a dockhand on a ship in New Zealand around the turn of the 20th century the 19th to the 20th century. He was responsible for getting a herd of sheep off of a ship and and into a particular uh, pen. And and he had heard these things about sheep not being all that intelligent, and he wanted to find out for himself if that were the case. And so the sheep were coming down the gangplank from the ship into the particular pen they were supposed to go. And he said, well, I'm going to put an obstacle in front of the sheep and see if they can jump over it. You know, you put, you put something in front of a dog or in front of a cat, they'll jump it, right? But he put an obstacle in front of the sheep and there was a traffic jam. The, sheep that, the first sheep that came to that obstacle stopped. 
And so every sheep behind that other sheep stopped. They couldn't figure out that they could jump over this little obstacle. Finally, the dockhand went up to that sheep that was first in line and was stuck behind that obstacle, and he picked the sheep up and kind of gave it the jumping motion and put it over, and they did that with another sheep, and he did that with another sheep, until finally the sheep got the idea that they could jump over the obstacle. And one by one, they jumped over the obstacle. And then the dockhand, kind of content with his experiment, thought he'd add a little bit to it, and he walked up to where the sheep were jumping over the obstacle, and he removed the obstacle to see what the sheep would do. Sure enough, every single sheep jumped over nothing, following the sheep in front of it. You know how many times you and I have engaged in sin by playing follow the leader as a dumb, unintelligent sheep? How many times have we turned from God and gone our own way and done our own thing and left the privileges and the protections of God and found ourselves disrupted and in sin? Folks, I can't tell you how many times it's been true of me And I know it's been true of you. And for some of you that are watching, it's been true of you as well. As sheep, we follow Jesus as our shepherd. I'm going to tell you something beautiful. Jesus as a shepherd didn't leave us to our own unintelligent, dumb devices. Sure, we were straying. But for so many of us that are watching and so many of us that were in the room, we can remember that moment when Jesus, our shepherd, came after us. When where we were stuck in pride or stuck in self-righteousness or stuck in self-loathing or stuck in immorality or stuck in sin or stuck in drunkenness or whatever it was, Jesus came to where we were as a shepherd. And you know what he did? He reached down into our sin-sick state And he pulled us out of that situation. He pulled us out of that sin. He forgave us that unrighteousness because he had gone to the cross and he had borne that sin in his body on the tree that we might be forgiven and cleansed. Do you know what he does? He offers us the privilege of being forgiven and taking us from that state of following following our unrighteousness and gives us the privilege to follow him as Lord and as Savior. This passage of Scripture is kind of an odd one. Meaning he talks about slaves and he talks about salvation and he talks about sheep and and, and where do they connect? In some ways, if you just read it at a glance, they're disjointed, the subject material is. But really it's not. It's a misnomer because Jesus is the hero of all of these sections. To slaves and people who are treated unjustly, Jesus is our example. He's our model. He's the only one who's done everything exactly right. When we get to that point where we realize we're sinners, Jesus is the hero there too because he bore our sins on Calvary. He took our unrighteousness. He offers us a chance to die to our sinfulness and to live to righteousness. It's a beautiful picture. And get this, as sheep, he's the hero there too because we're the dumb sheep who run off and go the wrong direction. But he's the shepherd who was waiting there for us, who was seeking out after us, who brings us into a right relationship with himself. Folks, let me tell you this. Jesus is the hero of all of our stories. 
He is the answer to all of our problems. He is the solution to all of our sinfulness. He is the one that offers us eternal life. For some of you, under the sound of my voice, you may be six, maybe 16, you may be 48, I don't know. But you've been straying for far too long. You're bound up in your own sinfulness. You're bruised by your own immoralities and unrighteousness. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus in this message and from this passage of Scripture is offering you an opportunity to be forgiven. What you need to do is believe that He died on the cross for your sins and you need to confess your sins and repent and turn to Him. And you know what? If you will follow Him as Lord and Savior, He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He will wash every sin away. You know how I know? Because He's done it with me. And for so many that are in this room and so many that are watching, you can look around you if you're in the, in the room with other people. Or if you're at home, you can look around and you say, Did Jesus do that for you? Did He cleanse you of your sin? And I'm going to tell you, we would testify, Yes, He did. He washed away our unbelief. He cleansed us of our pride. He washed our immorality away and he brought us into his family. Let me tell you something, folks. He'll do that for you. Unbeliever, he'll do that for you. If you're a sinner and you need to trust Jesus, he will cleanse you of your sin. You can say something like this, Jesus, I know you died for my sins. This passage of scripture tells me so. I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me. I want to follow you with my life. I want to experience your forgiveness and eternal life. Will you save me and will you give me the salvation that I so desperately need. I'm going to tell you, if you pray that honestly, and if you're willing to follow Jesus as your Lord, when you pray that, you know what He's going to do? He's going to wash that sin away. He's going to cleanse you. He's going to forgive you. He's going to give you a new life and do exactly what He said in verse 24, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He will heal you by the wounds that He experienced. If you're not sure how to do that, I would beg of you to reach out to us. Comment in the section of the social media platform that you're watching on. Send us an email, info at wilkesboroughbaptist.org. Let us know what's going on. I'd be happy to tell you how you can trust Jesus. If you're in the room, you want to trust Jesus to be your Savior, there's nothing more important than you getting that settled and getting that right. And believer, remember what Jesus did for you. He healed you by His wounds. He cleansed you by His stripes. He washed your sins away by the bruises that He took, by the blood that He shed. He came and found you when you were straying like a sheep. That makes him worthy of our worship and worthy of our lives and worthy of following him. I want to die to sin to live to righteousness because of what Jesus has done for me. So we sing in just a moment. We're going to sing, I'll come to the altar. Maybe you need to come to the altar. Maybe you need to pray in a physical, real state here in this worship service. Maybe you want to make an altar in your room, in your living room, at home, wherever you are. Bow before God. Acknowledge that He is the one who will save and forgive. Maybe you want to bow before Him in worship. He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship and praise. Stand with me as we close in a time of prayer and worship. Dear Father, we realize and we freely admit that we are not righteous enough and good enough. Lord, we cannot be perfect in our submission, and we are certainly not righteous in all of our behaviors Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bore our sins on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to give us new life and eternal life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we have strayed and when we have followed sinful people and done sinful things like sheep, you reached down into our circumstances. You followed after us. You found us. 
You picked us up. You cleansed us. You will forgive us. You will make us right with yourself. Lord God, that makes you worthy of our worship and adoration for you are the savior of our souls. You're the shepherd of our hearts and lives. You are the one who has forgiven and redeemed us. Thank you. Lord, I pray for any under the sound of my voice that have not yet trusted you as Lord and Savior. Will you bring them to a place where they will turn from their sinful ways and they'll trust you as Lord and Savior and they'll receive your forgiveness. Dear Father, will you let them in this moment become followers of you and experience the forgiveness of the shepherd and the Savior and the example Jesus Christ. Have your way in our hearts and lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.